It was a squeak vote. She won it by one vote. And uh, so you would think that that would be the end of it. It wasn't. It was the road, the zombie road. It kept coming back to life over and over and over again. And, and I think that that who me syndrome applies to women running for municipal elections as well. So when there are perfectly capable women out there who could do excellent work on council, uh, the who me, that that little voice that says, maybe I'm not the person who should be doing this comes up and we have to stop that. Hello, my name is Olivia Beauty. Welcome to Searching for Izena on Womanly Stories of Female Leadership at Edmonton City Hall, brought to you by YWCA Edmonton, Parity Yeg, and several past and present Edmonton City Councillors. 100 years ago, on December 12, 1921, Edmonton elected its first female councillor, Izena Ross. Over the past century, only 30 women have followed in her footsteps, including me. This nine-part podcast, generously sponsored by the Edmund Community Foundation, will tell that wildly incomplete chapter of our city's history, the good, the bad, and the ugly. You will get to meet the 31 female councillors and learn more about why they ran and how they shaped our city. And there are still barriers that need to be broken, even in 2021. Now let's get started. Welcome back to the Searching for Izena podcast. Part 7 is called What If? Over the next hour, we ask the big question, what if the 31 women who have served on Edmonton City Council over the past century were never elected? How different would our city look and feel? Would Edmonton be Edmonton? While women councillors did all the bread and butter work during their terms, budgets, committees, etc., many also brought forward initiatives that made our city more livable, more beautiful, more Edmonton. Thanks for joining us. My name is Shirley Lowe and I'll be your guest host for this episode. Thanks to generous support from the Edmonton Heritage Council, I'm the Searching for Izena Project's Chief Historian. I've also served as a Historian Laureate for the City of Edmonton. I will be joined today by Marlena Wyman, another former City of Edmonton Historian Laureate. We are going to take you on a tour of sorts around Edmonton and talk about the incredible, often visionary and sometimes hidden legacies of many of our former female councillors. We've picked four to discuss this episode, but there are many, many more, including Janice Melichuk's tireless work to renovate Borden Park to its former glory and into the crown jewel of our park systems, to Sherry McKibben's help in creating the Edmonton Arts Council, to former Mayor Jan Reimer's groundbreaking initiatives that put Edmonton on the world map when it came to recycling and the environment. So let's get started. Welcome to the Searching for Izena podcast, Marlena. Before we begin, I want to talk more about you and your term as Historian Laureate. What brought you to the role and what areas of research do you focus on? 
Well, thanks, Shirley. I'm happy to be here today. Um, to give you a bit more background about me, I'm an artist and I worked as the audiovisual archivist at the Provincial Archives of Alberta for about 30 years. Uh, my areas of responsibility there included historic photos, film and sound archives. And it's funny, I thought it was particularly appropriate that I was asked to join in on this episode of What If, because my nickname at the archives was What If Wyman. <laughs> I mean, someone has to ask the what ifs. So here I am again. <laughs> and in my work as an archivist, I found that one of the significant gaps in archival collections and in mainstream history is that of women's stories. That's also the case for the voices of Indigenous people and other non-mainstream voices. Now, archives are working to change that, but it is a slow process. Women have always been community builders. They established schools, libraries, churches, charities, and social work. They organized social functions and they brought arts and culture to their communities. As an artist, my artworks are inspired by my work at the archives and through my continued research into the diaries, letters and photographs of early women and their stories in archival collections. And in my art practice, I honor these women's considerable contributions. I advocate for their rightful place in history and I encourage women to deposit their own and their foremothers records and archives. A lot of people don't realize that archives are open to the public, both for research and for donation. Now, during my historian laureate term, I interpreted the history of Edmonton, and especially that of Edmonton women, through my art. Among other projects, I created and exhibited artworks based on the stories of several Edmonton women and women's organizations in order to shed light on those stories. Uh, but something that surprised me as a historian laureate was that there was an expectation that I would know everything about the history of Edmonton, and, and that's just not possible. Historians have very specific areas of specialization, but as an archivist, I was able to help direct people to the sources for them to research the answers to their questions. And I think your focus as historian laureate was a bit different, wasn't it, Shirley? It was. I think all of us as historian laureates took a different perspective on the history of Edmonton. And mine was communities. I did uh, several histories of different communities. Also, the building of Edmonton, the, the physical, social, and, and cultural stories of, um, of the development of Edmonton. And heritage preservation from both an, envir well, both an environmental and, uh, and cultural perspective, and also the um, economic benefits. So mine was more focused in that way. I have a couple of reports that are online that, um, that deal with these subjects as well. So I think together we should be able to do this. I think you're right. Let's go. All right. Okay, let's get started on this tour. So first of all, we're going to travel to the McKinnon Ravine. It's a beautiful multi-use trail uh, next to the North Saskatchewan River in the West End. And it's one of the most popular trails in Edmonton's sprawling and well-used valley system. So in the 60s and 70s, it was ground zero for the debate about whether or not the um, pa paradise would be paved and, um, and whether or not uh, we should install a freeway in the heart of this river valley. But thanks to several female councillors, nature won out. Now, I think we're going to uh, talk about how important uh, McKinnon Ravine was to, to the whole river valley, um, simply because we, um, uh, in 1963, there was um, the Edmonton Metropolitan 
a transportation uh, study, which basically called for the paving of virtually all of the, you know, most of the ravines, the river valley and um, parts of uh, downtown, the neighborhoods that survived, surrounded it, and of course, um, Old Strathcona. And um, so it, McKinnon Ravine was the last battle. Uh, and it's important because if McKinnon Ravine had, had happened, it would have triggered or re-triggered all of the work the people had done to stop that inner freeway system. And um, now the River Valley, Marlena, as you know, was, was valuable to so many people throughout the history of our community. And, uh, and there were a few artists involved. Well, yes, and in fact, um, the fight to protect our ravines and River Valley was not new. And um, unfortunately, it seems to have to be constant. Uh, my counselors don't work alone. They gather inspiration and support from citizens of both the past and the present. Uh, two of the citizens were Edmonton women who were great defenders of our green spaces. Photographer in River Valley activist Gladys Reeves and artist and River Valley activist Margaret Chappelle. And, and in one of my what ifs that has come to me through my research, where I have found the archival records of women who were involved in politics from a community point of view, but they didn't run for a council. And I, I wish I could have asked them why they didn't. And, and one of these women was Edmontonian Gladys Reeves, born in 1890. She was perhaps best known for being one of the first women to own a photography studio west of Winnipeg. However, one of her most significant contributions to Edmonton was her tireless advocacy for the beautification of our city and the protection of natural areas of our ravines and river valley. She campaigned to restore green spaces which were being used for garbage dumps and industry. And uh, when I was historian laureate, I created an art exhibit of paintings and installation about Gladys during my term as historian laureate. Uh, I titled one of my paintings, Gladys as River Valley Warrior. And here's an excerpt from a 1930 letter that she wrote to the editor of the Edmonton Journal protesting road development in the River Valley. So she said, those of us who have lived among Edmonton's ravines and riverbanks enough to know and love them, have drunk in the beauty of the bursting leaf buds in the spring, the restful swath of green in the summer, the riot of color during our autumn days, and the magic of Jack Frost's artistry on a horror frosty morning in winter. We wonder if the real beauty is better viewed from the top road rather than by cutting a gash right through the center of these lines of beauty. And that was in 1930. That's perfect. The, um, there were other people, of course, who saw the Met's plan and decided that, uh, that, they, that they couldn't live with the results of that. Uh, so our tour through through the Millwoods Ravine, swimming in the pool, through the River Valley Trails, uh, down White Avenue, around downtown, through the neighborhoods that surround it, and, uh, and through River Valley Road, uh, bring us back to McKinnon Ravine and the fact that it would have started at 105th Street with an interchange. And it would have gone through west to through the ravine, out on 149th Street and down 100th Avenue until the end of the city, whatever that was at that time. And this was, um, this was something that had to be stopped in order not to trigger the whole valley uh, 
project again. And so there were several women that came up to do that. Uh, the first was, uh, was Una Evans. And uh, she managed in 1974 to get the Jasper Place Freeway or the McKinnon Ravine Road out of the transportation plan. It was a squeak vote. She won it by one vote. And uh, so you would think that that would be the end of it. It wasn't. It was the road, the zombie road. It kept coming back to life over and over and over again. So throughout the late 70s and the early 80s, councillors Betty Hughes, Lois Campbell, Jan Reimer, and um, uh, the um, uh, and several others had to deal with the with the resurgence of this proposal. So in 1983. Finally, uh, the vote to take the, uh, the River Valley uh, Park uh, in, in McKinnon Ravine, uh, to drop the funding on that, was lost, again, by a very small vote. And that was the end of it. McKinnon Ravine got funding for its park, and that was done. There were several years where Betty Hughes and her group uh, would walk out of meetings, would have, would um, would bring all kinds of evidence to show that this was a bad deal. Uh, the central area was going to cost the city of Edmonton millions of dollars. And uh, an example, for instance, just the loop that went around downtown would have demolished 2,700 buildings, would have gone through several neighborhoods, and would have cost $70 million to $1971 just to demolish without building. So council eventually realized that they couldn't afford it. So thank you to Una Evans, Betty Hughes, Jan Reimer, and Pat McKenzie. Oh, and Lois Campbell. And also thanks to another citizen, Margaret Chappelle, who um, was more directly aligned with saving the McKinnon Ravine. In fact, she led the citizen protests. And Margaret was an accomplished Edmonton artist who also worked to promote other Edmonton artists. And she and her husband lived a fairly reclusive life. But in October 1965, City Council made Margaret Chappelle so mad that she came out of seclusion to fright, fight the freeway construction through McKinnon Ravine. She loved nature and animals, and she was dismayed by the city's ignorance that would wipe out Edmonton's wildlife habitat areas. In, in October 12, 1965, Edmonton Journal article, it stated, West Edmonton's women are on the warpath, referring to Margaret as Mrs. G.F. Chappelle of Stony Plain Road and her band of housewives. And uh, she told the reporter, We'll protest next week and probably do something more drastic, like sitting in the trees and blocking the roads. And a few days later, an effigy of the city's chief engineer was found hanging from the 142nd Street Bridge. Chappelle and her fellow protesters spent their days lying in front of bulldozers, spying time, and recruiting allies. And interestingly, um, Betty Hughes became friends with Margaret during the time of protests and as, as you said, she also opposed the freeway for her time on city council. So Margaret Chappelle was a visionary at a time when environmental issues were not front and center. And through her protest, she helped start a movement toward urban reform that took place in the 1970s in Edmonton. So what if these women who were elected officials and citizens had not saved the ravines? The city would have paved paradise, put up a parking lot and a freeway. 
Okay, well, thank you, Marlena. This took 20 years to save the River Valley, and uh, we have we certainly do thank uh, Una McLean Evans, Betty Hughes, Jan Reimer, and um, and many more people who worked diligently to give us the River Valley and the communities that we have now. So this moves us on to um, to the next section, which is uh, a, we're traveling over to the Cornell Bridge and to Fox Drive. Uh, to the Telestome that is undoubtedly one of the most controversial civic art projects in Edmonton. Love it or hate it, these 1,000 handcrafted stainless steel spheres, often referred to as the talus balls, help put Edmonton Civic Art Collective on the map. Our city has a former councillor, Helen Paul, to thank for that. And um, I'm just going to start with a quote from Helen and, um, and turn it over to you, Marlena, because you know a lot about this. Uh, she said, you can't do everything when you were an alderman, you just got get bogged down. So pick something that you're passionate about and be a champion of that. Obviously, that was art for her. Yes, Helen Paul served as an alderman on city council from 1986 to 1992. She had a strong belief in service to the community and was passionate about arts and culture. She introduced the concept of publicly funded art in 1988, and it was adopted by council in 1991. The Percent for Art program allocates 1% of the eligible construction budget of any publicly accessible or highly visible municipal construction project for the acquisition of art. This was a controversial policy, and there were detractors both on the side of council and in the public. Other percent for art programs existed around the world before Helen Paul introduced Edmonton's, but ours was and still is in a lot of ways a young city. And we don't always understand what other mature cities do, and that is that art, architecture, and history are important in placemaking and in storytelling and creating identity and sense of community, civic pride, and a vibrant life for our citizens. Hopefully life is about more than just work and survival. But public art is an easy target for complaint because we know how much the art costs. But hidden in the costs of that construction, of the entire construction site, are often other decisions that can be much more costly than the art, such as maybe the choice of the newest in high-tech elevators rather than a regular serviceable elevators. And we don't hear complaints about the details of, of those construction costs because we just don't know how much those types of construction decisions cost us. However, newspaper reports were largely supportive of her public arts policy. An Edmonton Journal article of May 17, 1991 reported, Council's decision to devote 1% of construction budgets to public art is a solid investment in the future of the city, accepted by such civilized jurisdictions across the world. Killing it would just make our town a sadder, grayer place. Too stupid to dedicate your relative pittance to beauty. And another Edmonton Journal article of October 29, 1991 stated, Alderman Helen Paul has won political backing for an ambitious program of public art acquisition that could vastly enhance both the appearance and pride in Edmonton. Now, as for the Talis Dome, we heard from one of her family members that she probably wouldn't have liked it. She was more of a traditionalist, and it just wasn't her style. However, I think she had an open mind about art that was not to her taste. She worked with Alderman Patricia McKenzie and Bruce Campbell, 
and City Hall architect Jean Dubb and City Hall project manager Bob Walker to select the City Hall sculptures and the two large paintings flanking the grand staircase. So these two featured paintings on either side of the staircase are large abstract paintings by Edmonton artist Douglas Haynes. And he was instrumental in bringing abstract modernism into Edmonton's mainstream. In a September 3rd, 1992 Edmonton Journal article, she was quoted as saying that she was not an expert in art, but she grew to appreciate Douglas Haynes' artworks and thinks her panel made the right choice. She said, I can't imagine anything else there. The size and power and color are perfect. Another controversial aspect of the Talus Dome is that it was not created by local artists. Some of our public art pieces are created by local artists and some are created by international artists. And there are good reasons for both. As Helen Paul said, it's a great opportunity for local artists to receive commissions that they might otherwise never get. However, works by international artists help to put Edmonton on the map in other countries. And if we limited our public art commissions to local artists, then that means they would not have the reciprocal opportunity to apply for international public art competitions. And as with many things in life, you cannot please everyone, but there are a wide range of art styles represented by the public art in our city. So there would be something that could please anyone, but the most curmudgeonly. And art can also be provocative and challenge viewers to see their surroundings in a new or different way. And that's not a bad thing. After leaving office, Helen Paul said that her public art policy was one of her proudest achievements. So what if we didn't have her percent for art policy? I think Edmonton would be a much more gray and bland place. It would also have a lot less whimsy. I mean, you, you have to you have to talk about the talus domes and and the the big stockings and shoes at the Southgate Center, and then uh, and then the the, the pink and blue. Uh, what was that called? The in in Borden Park. I mean, people want to go there. They want to touch it. They they they. I smile when I see those things, and I think a lot of other people do. So it's not just about the guy on a horse um, holding a sword. You know, we we have uh, we have all kinds of art, and and it's it really it really gives us. Uh, you're right, a sense of place. No one else has that. That's right. That's what is forms part of Edmonton's identity. Okay. Well, thank you, Helen Paul. Thank you for listening to Searching for Izena. This podcast was made possible thanks to the generous financial support of the Edmonton Community Foundation. We also want to thank the Edmonton Public Library, the City of Edmonton Archives, the Adams Agency, and Ryan Jesperson for the generous use of his Real Talk recording studio. Check out searchingforizena.com for a full list of this project sponsors, partners, and committee members. Searching for Izena has been largely powered by volunteers from across the capital region, from research to social media to marketing. Volunteers of all ages, backgrounds, and political leanings are helping bring Searching for Izena to life during a pandemic and countless Zoom calls. Thanks to the former and current Edmonton City Councillors who have helped us tell 
their important stories. Now, back to searching for Azina. So, we're off again, and this time we're going to go uh, to Maple, which is a neighborhood in southeast Edmonton that is the site of a new proposed affordable housing development by Ivana Rentals, Alberta. Edmonton City Councillors have approved more than $10 million for affordable housing projects. The grant money will help build 124 units at four locations across the city. Three organizations will receive money. The new affordable units will be aimed at housing First Nations families, newcomers, women and children, and people with disabilities. So earlier this year, Edmonton City Council approved $10 million for four new affordable house projects, including the one in Maple, one councillor that often gets credit for helping to open the door to the possibility of more affordable housing is Edmont- in Edmonton is Karen Leibovitsi. Early on, uh, Karen was uh, an MLA in Edmonton and then ran for city council in 2001 and won. She was on for three terms, and in that time, she did a lot of really good work. And um, the uh, the whole housing thing was one uh, that was one project that uh, that just keeps on giving. Edmonton has always had a problem housing people who have low incomes or no incomes, and um, and this there were several initiatives that happened during Karen's term that um, that gave a different uh, that moved this forward. So she was um, she was the chair of the Mayor's Initiative on Attainable Housing and the Mayor's Designate on the Committee to End Homelessness. She led the Affordable Housing Council initiative that resulted in 600 units. Uh, She implemented the fixed rent rate supplement and the fee rebate for affordable housing programs. And um, so she um, she was a leader in getting people and homeless people housed in Edmonton, and uh, and I think we can see the results of her work these days. Now, and I think that affordable housing, of course, has always been more of a concern for women. Women and children are affected more by housing markets and, and the ability to afford housing than anyone else. So I think that this is a place where women counselors understand that and have worked to make life better for women and children in Edmonton. Well, and that brings us to uh, why it's important to have women on council and in administration. And and Karen also supported having more women in administrative leadership roles. So she she championed the um, uh, sensitivity training for people who actually hired women in administration. The um, and resulted in, as we know now, a lot more women who are in leadership roles at, at the city of Edmonton. But women live very different lives. Uh, we may come to the same job, but we've come there in different ways. And uh, and I think that the result of of this work and her work and others, uh, it makes that point very succinctly. Now, that brings us to. Our final stop, which is at City Hall in downtown Edmonton. It's a pyramid-top building that opened to the public on August 1992. So join us at the Tyndall Stone floor and the sprawling city room, the main meeting room that leads to the council chambers at the top of the sweeping staircase. Um, So first things first, a motion to add 9.6 to the agenda. 
We want to highlight the work of current city councillor Bev Esslinger. In 2013, she was the lone woman elected to council. While Bev uh, always cared about equity issues, her lack of uh, female counterparts on council helped shape her council work aimed at opening more doors for women in our city. Now, she wasn't the first city councillor to want more women. It, it goes way back. Uh, Margaret Crane was constantly uh, working to get more women into administration. She was uh, she wanted to uh, get women to be part of um, uh, of the relief efforts during the 1930s for for people who who didn't have jobs and food or places to live. And then it went uh, to um, Ethel Wilson, who actually got some women's initiatives started when she was not only a city councillor or alderman, but she was also an MLA at the very same time. Now, none of those really did a lot uh, because she was surrounded by people who were not particularly sympathetic or didn't see those as important initiatives. But Bev Esslinger really took this on. And um, she started a number of, of initiatives at, um, at City Council. She was uh, the parental leave. She managed to uh, convince the provincial government of the day to change the Municipal Government Act so that municipalities could provide parental leave when, uh, when uh, they had new children. And that, of course, made a big difference to uh, uh, how young people could actually get involved. People who were at the uh, uh, family building stage could get involved in, in the political sphere as well. So she uh, put together a group of, of women, uh, um, WAVE. This is the women's uh, group that, um, uh, that met regularly. And it was a tool to bring women together, not only uh, to network, but also to learn. Yes, that's the, the Women's Advocacy Voice of Edmonton Committee. And it's a group of 15 community leaders from diverse backgrounds. It's approved by City Council and brought together to help advance the work of Women's Initiative Edmonton. And Women's Initiative Edmonton is also a City of Edmonton initiative supported and endorsed by City Council that fosters and promotes equality, opportunity, access to service, justice, and inclusion for women in our city. Well, there was also the policy that um, that would provide uh, uh, child care while women were addressing City Council. Now, the pilot project was for last year, and of course, nobody actually came to Council to address it. But hopefully, that will be something that continues from now on, because there were a lot of uh, a lot of mothers and, and fathers, for that matter, that uh, were responsible for their children during the day, which is really the only time that Council will meet and discuss projects and 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 things that affect families. So that was that was an initiative that a lot of people asked for, and she got that through. So gender equality will take work by both men and women. And um, so she wants these initiatives to promote gender equity and uh, and for the attitudes and stereotypes that we need uh, that need some change. So we'll see how that goes this year when everybody's back on the floor. 
And the thing about Beth Esslinger's and other women on council, when they were working to make women's lives better, they were also working to make men's lives better. Men were not being excluded. So, for example, the um, parental leave policy was not just for women, it's for men as well. And, and that's where feminism and a lot of these women counselors over the years were feminist. Some of them um, called themselves feminists, some didn't. But what a true feminist does in her work is makes things better for everyone, makes things equal for everyone, which means that life is going to be better, not just for women, but for men as well. Well, there are a number of studies that talk about uh, uh, building cities for children, women, disabled people actually makes a safer and better city, more livable city for everyone. And um, and that's that would be true if you know if you feel safe and comfortable in your city, chances are that that will apply to everyone else as well. The um, which brings us to, you know, we've we've talked about how well and how wonderful some of these things are, and um, and there and there, of course there are a lot of other women that we didn't talk about and that prob- and have left their own legacies. And we need to capture this. These, uh, a lot of the work that's been done, uh, looking for the histories of, of these of the women that were on council in the last hundred years, took almost a year to do, and that's because there isn't a deposit for this. There, the 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 pieces are scattered, and and it takes a long time to put it all together. And I know that as an archivist, Marlena, that uh, that we could do better. So maybe talk about what we could do in the future to ensure that the next 50 or 100 years aren't scattered as well. Yes, and, and one of the things that I noticed that seems to strike um, in archives, in women's archives in particular, is what I call the who me syndrome. Uh, when I worked at the archives, I would often get calls from widows who had their husband's papers and wanted me to come take a look at them and see if they were worthwhile donating to the archives. So I would go to their home and have a chat with them and take a look at all their husband's records and say, yes, this is definitely what the archives would be interested in. This maybe not so much. And when we were finished talking about her husband, I would say, now, how about you? How about your records and what you did? And almost to a woman, they would say, who, me? as if what their contributions were were not worthwhile. And so I would start to try and, and get that information from them. So I'd say, well, tell me the story of your life. Tell me what you did. And often they were involved in volunteer work, even if they weren't involved in, in paid work. They were involved in, in teaching music to, to children or, or helping to, to get the church together or setting up social functions and so forth. And it took me a while to generally convince each of them that, yes, their contributions made for a better community, made for a better life for everyone. And their work at home with their own children was, was worthwhile. I think that often what happens is, is money is associated with value. And sometimes, because society tells us that, we women can sometimes undervalue our own contributions and abilities. And, and I think that that who me syndrome applies to women running for municipal elections as well. So when there are perfectly capable women out there who could do excellent work on council, uh, the who me, that that little voice that says maybe I'm not, 
the person who should be doing this comes up and we have to stop that. We do. And the, the researchers for the, the Searching for Izena project found that there was a lack of records about the women mayors and councillors who they were researching. And um, I spoke with Catherine Ivany, the city archivist, and she said there is uh, a records retention schedule for municipal government departments for the mayor and councillors that specify which records come to the city archives. But for mayors and councillors, that means anything that's considered a corporate record, committee, records, minutes, research files, meetings, that sort of thing. However, for many other records created by mayors and councillors, such as their speeches, their, their ward business, and to me, I think oddly considered private councillor business, those can be donated by the mayor or councillor after their term, but only if they choose to do so. So it's a bit confusing about what can come to archives, what should come to archives, and what if they don't donate their records? That means that much of the history of their work and accomplishments can be lost. So we must encourage them and other women to donate their records to archives so that those legacies can be preserved. And so far, um, the, the project, the research that's being done on this project will um, will be uh, will be captured in a finding aid at the City of Edmonton Archives, which means that we will be looking for all kinds of uh, of archival material that may not be at the city archives, but we will note it so that people can find it perhaps in other archives or in private archives. But we certainly encourage any families that um, that don't know what to do with usually cases and cases of uh, archival material from a family member who's been on council to make that donation. And that way we can have these these records together, and uh, and it will be, and then we will we'll be able to to tell the stories of people who changed our city. Well, thanks uh, for joining me and Marlena on this special tour of Edmonton. We hope you've learned more about the many important and often transformative initiatives and projects that women councillors in our city helped champion over the last century. They helped make Edmonton Edmonton a livable, beautiful, and welcome place. It also shows us at the Searching for Isaiah project how important it is to be there uh, and to hear the diversity of voices from all walks of life, backgrounds and genders serving in our city council chambers. We're hopeful that in the 2021 election in October that we can bring more change to the Edmonton City Hall and the future of our city because a diversity of voices helps to build a city for everyone. Thanks again for listening. On the next episode, Kim Ann and Stacy return to hosting part eight, and we will be investigating lost stories in the Searching for Isaiah project. Stories that you need to hear before the project wraps up this fall. Stories about some of the women we haven't spotlighted yet, including Ethel Wilson, who was once, uh, at one point held three jobs, counselor, MLA, and seamstress. Oh yeah, she was also a single mother and helped to start one of Edmonton's first women's shelter called Hilltop House in 1965. You won't want to miss that episode. Until then, keep searching for Izena. You've been listening to Searching for Izena, brought to you by YWCA Edmonton, Parody Yeag, and several past and present Edmonton City Councillors. 
New episodes from our nine-part podcast are released the third Tuesday of every month until October. Please check our show notes, social media, and searchingforazina.com for more information about this project and how you can get involved. Share this with your friends and family and leave us a review. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, keep searching for Azina.